What are the sounds that move you? A skylark singing in spring? A speech that inspires you to act? A voice that reminds you of home? Words and performance have been vital lifelines throughout my life. And in this podcast series, I'm exploring how language and speech have shaped all of our lives, our work, our identities. Words, English words, full of echoes, memories. So I'm diving into the British Library Sound Archive, the nation's largest collection of almost 6.5 million recordings that span the whole history of recorded sound. I'm in here with all of this and I can't quite believe my look. In this series, I'll be sharing some of my favourite recordings with you and some rather special wordsmiths. I'm Lem Sisay. Welcome to All About Sound from the British Library. There's something that is wordless about love. In the end, you can't pin it down, and therefore, we're endlessly trying to pin it down. <laughs> There's the challenge in trying to create it on the page. It's an elusive beast, isn't it? Ever since we started to fall in love, we've attempted to capture the feeling in language. We share stories of new romance, I read about star-crossed lovers turned to poetry in heartbreak. From Shakespeare to Sally Rooney, Tolstoy to Toni Morrison, we can't get enough of it. But why? And how have the ways we speak and write about love changed over time? Novelist Monica Ali is joining me to listen to love stories from the British Library Sound Archive to explore why we're still enamoured with tales of romance. Monica Ali, a best-selling writer and Booker Prize nominee whose work has been translated into 26 languages. You've written five books and your most recent is called Love Marriage, so you're clearly the perfect person for today's conversation. Great to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Without giving too much away, your novel, Love Marriage, starts out as a social comedy which develops into a story of two cultures, two families and two people trying to understand each other. The novel starts as young Dr Yasmin and her family are on the way to dinner with fiancé Joe's family. It's the first time the parents will meet. Early in the book, you write, she loved Joe and he loved her. There was nothing to fret about. A good love story is never that simple, though, is it? <laughs> no, it certainly isn't for Joe and Yasmin. And the parents as well. Goodness, the parents as well. I mean, there is nothing simple about love in this book. It does explore love from many different angles, whether that's the parent-child or whether it's siblings or whether it's friendship, and then romantic love and sexual love as well. And 
Yes, the parent story is actually what is referred to in the title, Love Marriage. That's the sort of founding story of that family, the Garami family. But Yasmin has to find out the truth behind the love marriage as well. I should explain how this show works because it will have inside of it all of the complexity that love marriage has in it as well. I'm going to play you some loved up voices from the British Library Sound Archive and these recordings will inspire our conversation from the initial butterflies to the relationship doldrums to the brink of breakups. We're going to cover it all but let's start at the beginning. In September 2009, poet Choman Hardy was recorded in the British Library studio for the poetry recording project Between Two Worlds. Here, she's reading Summer Roof, about the first time she fell in love. I think it's time for a love poem, and this one is called Summer Roof. It's probably my first love when I was about 13 or 14, and in the Middle East... As you probably know, they're flat roofs and they all connect. You sleep on the roof um, in the summer. And this was very convenient because I was in love with a neighbor's son opposite a narrow road. Summer roof. Every night that summer, when we went to bed on the flat roof, I stayed awake, watching the opposite roof where he was, a tiny light turning on every time he puffed his cigarette. Once I was shown his paintings and I went home and wrote his name all over my books. I kept imagining what he would say, how I would respond. I imagined being married to him, looking after him when he fell ill, cooking for him and washing his hair. I imagined sleeping on the same roof. A whole year went by and we never talked, then suddenly... An empty house opposite us, an empty roof, not staring back, and sleepless nights for me. Years later we met again, the same man with a few fingers missing, bad-tempered, not able to paint. We never spoke. We remained on our separate roofs. What a beautiful poem. It's so evocative of, well, that setting is very visual, that detail of the light, little light turned on, being the cigarette. That just in itself conjures a whole landscape for me. And I think what strikes me most is how she lives the whole relationship in her head. And, of course, that says something about her age and the adolescent fervour and yearning for adulthood, you know, as well as for this almost imaginary mythical figure of the man. But it also, I think, speaks to how we do tend to make up objects of desire. You know, that's not just a feature of adolescence. You know, we try to mould the story of our lives, don't we? And they very rarely conform to the ways in which we try to mould them. It's the fantasy, isn't it? Yeah. She seems to be believing in, but it's a very real reflection of who she was at that time. 
Yes. As well. Yes. And then there's the kicker when she sees him as an older man with his missing fingers and bad temper. So she kind of dodged a bullet there, right? <laughs> Although she'd fantasised about looking after him when yes, he becomes yes. ill. I mean, maybe she would have been happy to nurse him. I don't think so, though. I think those closing lines are telling us that she was quite happy that they stayed on their separate roofs. Chum and Hardy introduced the poem by saying it was inspired by her own first love. Why do we sometimes feel the urge to write when we feel such an emotion? Does writing bring our internal feelings into reality? It can do. I think though, there's something that is wordless about love. In the end, you can't pin it down and therefore... We're endlessly trying to pin it down. I mean, what is it? Is it a feeling in your stomach? Is it, is it an intellectual state of mind that you've given yourself to this person? Is it that feeling of falling head first? Is it duty? Love in all its manifestations is so complicated and there's the challenge in trying to create it on the page. It's an elusive beast, isn't it? Oh, my love. My wife, death that hath sucked the honey of thy breath, hath had no power yet upon thy beauty. Ah, dear Juliet, why art thou yet so fair? Shall I believe that unsubstantial death is amorous? And that the lean, abhorred monster keeps thee here in dark to be his paramour. For fear of that, I still will stay with thee, and never from this palace of dim night depart again. The character Yasmin in your book, Love Marriage, repeatedly writes the name of her crush, Rupert, 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 she wrote in a biology <laughs> exercise book, <laughs> just as Chuman did. What's the link between writing and infatuation, between reading and infatuation? I've seen you once said in an interview, a life without writing increasingly became a life that wasn't worth living. Do you have to fall in love with writing? I think so. I think I have a love-hate relationship with writing, to be honest. So it's like a relationship? <laughs> yes. Can't live without it, can't live with it. I mean, overall, I do... I think I've come to the realisation that I do need writing in my life. I mean, passion is such an overused word, isn't it? People are passionate about everything these days. You know, you have to be passionate about serving coffee or whatever. I mean, yeah, the, not... the selfie is the passionate yeah. shot, isn't it? Passion... It's like, this is me yes. who believes in what I do, yes. or believes in how I look and where I am. Exactly. And actually, that's not a truth, is it? Exactly. Yes. Which isn't to say that you can't be really good at lots of different jobs. It's just that I hesitate around using that word passion, but it sort of is with writing for me. I like this idea of having a relationship with writing because relationships are as is shown in your book complicated and complex over time mm. so there are times where i've kind of fallen out of love with writing poetry oh really uh, yeah so for long stretches or to be honest for stretches where it's tested me yes yeah i think i have 
Were you still writing the poems, but you resented writing the poems or you just stopped writing them? Oh, that's a really good question, because sometimes I have resented writing. I have had commissions and felt like I'm not actually giving the writing the attention that it deserves. Mm. In Love Marriage, the characters are very interested in telling love stories and passing them on, keeping them alive. For example, Harriet says, and when she told me the story of how she came to be married to your father, oh, I was in tears. Mm. And, and for Yasmin, the story of her parents' love marriage has always been known to her. It was as if she had always known, as though she had been born with the knowledge she still thirsted for more. Another character, Mrs Antonova, tells the stories of her five marriages. Why is the telling of forbidden or unfulfilled love stories a key part of the book? The story of the love marriage, Yasmin's parents' marriage, is very key to the book. It doesn't take up a great deal of space, but it takes up a great deal of Yasmin's mental space. And, in fact, when she's at school, she's around 12 years old, they have to do a piece of creative writing, and she decides to write about her parents getting together. Because she's in awe of this story, so her parents are from India... Her father came from a very deprived background. He more or less grew up on the street. Her mother comes from a well-to-do family. So the idea that they made this love match, which is against the odds, that love conquered all... It's a romantic it, yeah, story. It's so romantic. It's beautiful. And it inspires her and, and so on. But her parents don't give her many details about it. You know, she'll ask and then they sort of fob her off with little bits and pieces. So she feels like she knows the story and yet she doesn't. So her way of making it concrete is to write about it for this English teacher and the creative writing exercise. And the teacher thinks it's brilliant. She shows her father because the teacher wants to enter it for a competition. But her father reads it with a face like stone and he says, you don't know what I said to your mother the first time I met her. And she says, well, it's creative writing, Baba. And he says, well, what is the difference between this creative writing and lies? And she's not allowed to enter it for the competition. So that raises the question of whose story is it to tell? Who does it belong to? When a story is out there, who owns it? I just want to say about stories yeah. that my experience of family is that all family is based on is a series of stories. Yeah. But there's always one child in one generation who will wake up and go, wait a minute. Yeah. Hold on. And the founding myth suddenly can't take the weight of the truth. And that happens in love marriage, except it's only in facing the difficult truths in the end that they actually begin to get through the torture and the difficult time and get beyond it. And that's the sort of irony, isn't it, that, you know, all the secret and guilt and shame and lies that seem to be protective, in the end, they need to be dismantled 
because on the other side of that, there's more freedom. It's, it's sad for us both because yeah. I was communicating in my way and you're communicating in your way and your way is totally legitimate too. It's like talking into two telephones with no connection between them. You know, I, I always have a story about what my life is going to be going forward and that's how I cope with the changes in life is I just write a new story about what's coming next. This conversation was recorded as part of The Listening Project for the BBC. Tales of unfulfilled or forbidden love stand the test of time. Orpheus and Eurydice, Shah Yahan and Mumtaz Mahal, Romeo and Juliet, Clarissa Dalloway and Sally Satan. Why do you think that is? Are these stories the most relatable, those of unfulfilled or forbidden love? Well, some stories, when they get a happily ever after, I think they're automatically kind of downgraded and put into the romantic fiction bucket, women's fiction, a sort of Mills and Boone type story. Mm. But yeah, that idea that people are fighting against the odds to get an unattainable goal, that they're star-crossed lovers, of course there's a sort of depth of passion there to conquer and that's you know the sort of heroic aspect of love isn't it yes. if it was all you know and they easily did get together yes and pink, pink clouds <laughs> and yeah <laughs> then, um, <laughs> there's going to be a lot less interest right right Marriages involve people, families coming together, often from different cultures, which can prove a challenge. I know you've said in the past that you think these arrangements reveal a lot about society. What do you mean by that? So I've always been a big fan of Jane Austen and she wrote endlessly, of course, about engagements and courtships and marriage. And through that supposedly narrow domestic prism, she actually shows us a lot about society at the time, about the position of women, about power, about class, about money. She's very specific on money. And even though now we're in a totally different landscape, multicultural landscape, Yasmin in love marriage is young professional woman, I still think that the customs and the rituals and expectations and the family dynamics that go around the planning of a wedding, which is still two families coming together, can reveal quite a lot about who we are as a society. So I've taken a bit of a leaf out of Jane Austen's book. I'd say where we differ is that love marriage also has a lot about sex in it which, you know, Austen, of course, <laughs> wasn't able to write about. So that sort of, you know, sexual love is something that's also, I think, revealing that all the mores and the boundaries or lack of boundaries around that is also quite telling of who we are today. Aside from the great literary romances, we've also always shared stories of relationships and heartbreak at home, at work, over a cup of tea with friends, 
This is where the British Library Sound Archive really comes into its own. To introduce the next recording, I'm handing over to someone who's played a big part in the library's Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. Hello, my name is Vicky Caron and I'm the cataloguing manager at the Northwest Hub of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. I love this clip. <laughs> This clip is an interview with Mr and Mrs Smedhurst recalling their youth in Salford. This was part of the Manchester Studies Oral History Project, which was carried out by academics in the late 1970s. Mr and Mrs Smedhurst recall the monkey parade of how teenagers would meet in Salford. So a monkey run or a monkey parade is basically teenagers dressing up, wearing their best clothes on Sundays after church, and they walk up and down particular roads in their area. They're hoping to attract someone, maybe make a date to go to the local park. The recording was made on the 31st of August, 1977, in the interviewee's home. Sunday night, all the lads and girls used to go on Echo's New Road and the garlic monkeys for them. Oh, you had one on Echo's New Road? Oh, yes, I, all the way up. I used to think it ended of a Sunday night. Yes. And what used to happen there? You know, you're going to look down there for boyfriends. <laughs> oh, and you were a failure if you didn't come back with a couple. You and your friend, you know. Oh, I think you nearly always managed to come back with two, didn't you? Two boys, two fellas. Hello. It made, it made your day then, you see, if you got to. If you hadn't, you'd have a rock and soul. How old would you be before you'd go on the monkey walk? How old would a girl oh, yeah, be, for example? 16, 16, uh, from about 16 to about 18, I started going with uh, Bob when I was about 18. The interview records a custom that's long gone, a custom that took place in other parts of the country and would have had its own regional name. So this interview was from the Manchester Studies collection and we selected a number of the interviews for digitisation. We had a thousand, over a thousand of them. It is an absolute gold mine and possibly my favourite collection we worked on. So hearing about a particular region of Greater Manchester, I felt it would help you know, provide connections to people who live there today with recent events in the past. Was it the Empire or the Regal that had seats a pair of seats with a pair without an arm down that wall. That was considered really fast if you went into those with a boy without the protective arm down the front. Seen in the two seats, they called them the two seats. Oh, yeah, you were, that, your reputation was shot if you were seen with a boy in those seats. The second recording was Diana Martin speaking in 2007. She was remembering her adolescence growing up in Great Yarmouth in the late 1950s. The interview was found in the Norfolk Record Office. That's a time gone by. 
Yeah, it was just, they're quite amusing, weren't they? The, what was it, the monkey walk or the monkey run? The monkey run? walk. The oh. monkey walk. Yeah, it's like the passeggiata, isn't it? But without the parents. Yes. I mean, so I, I guess in Italy or Spain or whatever, that you would have had the whole family going for the after-dinner stroll. But here it's the teenagers going out in search of... I'm yeah. not sure what... I mean, what do you think they actually got up to when they well, got well, home? Why did they well, need two boys? I was thinking about this, because when looking at the past, you can clean it up. Yeah. OK, so there was no fumbling moments there. There was just sort of glances and sort of, oh, I fancy that one. I mean, that's... But I don't do know. Yeah, well, though? exactly. It would that is that how it would be? It's very an interesting question to ask. I mean, I wonder how many ended up, you know, behind the doing or, things that the yes. yeah, I bet. And also, you start to wonder, well, what information did you glean from this walking up and down? But you know, is it any worse than what happens now on Tinder? Because what real information do you yes. glean on that either? So it's just a different form of doing that, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. By the way, this is just a total aside, mm. but I was brought up in England, so you know, I have all of the prejudices which I've had to work through. But I think arranged marriages happen in people who don't think arranged marriages happen. For example, in the English community, the parents are always checking out their child's partner's parents. Yeah. And a wedding is full of dowry, full of it. Mm. That's yeah, what the strange. presents are. Yeah, the wedding list at John Lewis or whatever. Come on! <laughs> whatever else. Sorry. I mean, you know, the title of my book, Love Marriage, means different things to different people depending on where they are in the world. So I've been doing quite a number of interviews with Indian publications and everybody in India, of course, and the subcontinent in general, reads it as a love match. They read it as love marriage Whereas here, people are not sure how to read it. They tend to say love and marriage. So here, people don't talk about love marriage because that's just marriage. But in India, you don't talk about arranged marriage because 97% of marriages are arranged. So that's just marriage. And the other thing is love marriage. God, that's so good. Love clearly isn't a straightforward feeling. Feelings of guilt and shame are never too far away. The next recording I want to play you from the archive hints at the complexity of a long-term relationship. In 2012, when this conversation was recorded, Lynn and Mary had been together for nine years and in this recording they questioned the future of their partnership. The conversation came after a difficult year in which Lynn had been jailed for six weeks for drink driving. It was recorded as part of The Listening Project for the BBC. You know, we haven't got a crystal ball. We don't know what the next weeks and months come the new year, what, what lies ahead. And I'd rather just take each day at a time and deal with things as we go along. It's no good setting well, not, targets. No, I'm, not, I'm not asking to set targets. But it's, it's just that on paper... We're supposed to be a couple. Yeah. In reality, we're not. Well, yeah, I suppose you could look at it like that. But it's it's how you move on from there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, I, th I mean, I, I don't want to continue like this because, I mean, it's just... Well, it's not an ideal situation, is it? No. Really. Um, 
Well, we have had brief discussions about where they were going our separate ways, haven't we? Mm. On several occasions. But financially, we can't afford can't to do, do it. it. I mean, do you... How do you feel about that? What does it... Sorry to be asking the questions, but, I mean, I've never had this opportunity to speak like this to you about it. But, I mean, is it something that you want to do? Or can we come back from what well, I'm just using in a piece from the brink or, or is that it? Well I suppose it's whether either or both of us want the same thing or does one want one thing and one want the other what do you want? You said to me last week if I could afford a solicitor's fees I'd go and see someone about breaking up selling the house, going our separate ways but neither you can afford it nor I but, I mean, there are times I, I just wonder um, what's happened to us. It's so heartbreaking, that. Even in the full one-hour conversation, there seems to be so much that's left unsaid. Miscommunication often plays a big part in love stories and breakups. So my question is, Monica, why do we still fail to communicate, do you think? Like this couple in a long relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I feel really sad for them because they're almost willing to talk, but they can't quite go there. It's tragic, isn't it? Why do we do that? Because it's painful. They've got to go through the pain yeah, barrier. Yeah. To get there. And, this, and that's not, you know, that's not easy to do. That clip was before the pain barrier, wasn't it? That it was, was before It was before, the pain barrier, if they were going to go through yeah, it. Yeah, they're not getting to the real difficult, deep, knotted truths. And part of that is out of respect for each other. Part of that will be out of fear. By going there, you're going into the unknown, right? And you're having to go inside yourself. It's not just meeting the other where they are. You have to be able to face what is deep inside you that you don't want to reveal even to yourself and that it takes some courage yes it, it does yes because the risk is that the whole thing will fall apart and yeah. you'll never see the partner again yeah once you go to that place exactly or this new landscape is there for both of you to walk into yeah feeling forever changed oh i've got to say honestly one time in i'm 54 years of age i was never been married one time a relationship ended and it's because the other person in the relationship was wanting to face the truth mm -hmm. and I wasn't. You weren't ready. I wasn't ready. And when that person left, we had a place, we had to, you know, sell the place and I was distraught. But it is the best thing that that person could ever have done for me. Does she or she does, he, yeah, she, she, does. she, she knows, knows that? Yeah, she knows that. Very clearly, we're good friends. Oh, well, it strikes to what exactly what you're yeah, saying. That's, exa that's exactly it. You she leaned into mm, the truth of, of the matter. Mm. And why do you think she was able to lean in? Was that maybe a bit of fear on your part for leaning into it? Or? Oh, yeah, I, I didn't want to see what she saw. Yeah. And also, she was basically saying... If you don't see this, we can't go any further. It's to be given a gift, really, to be able to see something in your own self that you need to yeah. work through. You know, your partner can say, look, I'm going, 
and I wish you well. And that yeah. can be the best thing for a, you. A parting gift. I mean, you yeah. say that, you know, to work through as well. I mean, this is why Americans call it doing the work. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, sort of I have, therapy yeah, yeah. speak. It's a word. But, it's a know, good word. But it's right, isn't yeah. it? It is. Somebody else isn't going to fix you. And it is all connected to words and to story. Yeah. You know, the story we tell ourselves, the story we tell each other of ourselves. Why do we like to read about, to borrow your phrase, the long haul of relationships? Does it help us through our own issues with love? Yeah, I think it does. It doesn't have to be, oh, yes, I recognise myself in that. It can be reacting against that. You know, why is that person acting that way? Or I would never act that way. But I think it's part and parcel of thinking through how we operate in the world, seeing how, you know, this character moves through the world. And I've done a couple of interviews with psychoanalysts and psychotherapists recently for their podcasts. And one of the psychotherapists who was interviewing me said, when a couple comes to see me, because she does couples therapy, my first job is to delve into the stories that they each come with, their own individual story, and then the story of their relationship, and then the stories behind those of their families. And what I hope is that when they finish the sessions with me, I mean, the facts clearly haven't changed, but the stories have changed. The way that they narrate those histories or the way that they understand them has changed. And that really is what I'm doing as a novelist as well. I mean, you know, Yasmin comes into the story with one set of ideas about both herself and her family and the love marriage. And by the time she gets to the end of the book, I mean, nothing in the history has changed, but her understanding is totally different. The story that she is now able to tell about it and about herself is different. And what used to happen there? You know, you're going to look down there for boyfriends. <laughs> oh, and you were a failure if you didn't come back with a couple. On paper? We're supposed to be a couple. Yeah. In reality, we're not. Well, that was considered really fast if you went into those with a boy without the protective arm down the front. Seen in the two seats, they called them the two seats. Ooh, yeah. Once I was shown his paintings and I went home and wrote his name all over my books. I kept imagining what he would say, how I would respond. <laughs> Monica, thanks for listening to the recordings with me. What have you taken from the voices we've heard? It's just been a real pleasure to listen to them and to think about love and relationships and all their glorious manifestations and difficulties and joy as well. It's been lovely. Thank you. Our exploration of the archive has come to an end, but there's so much more to listen to. If you'd like to explore further, visit bl.uk forward slash allaboutsound. And to see a full track listing of the archive and music recordings in this episode, do take a look at the episode description. 
This is a Pixiu production for the British Library. The producers are Katie Davis and Alex Watson. Next week, member of the House of Lords barrister and human rights activist Shami Chakrabarti joins the listening party to explore how debate and protest have ignited change throughout the centuries. Until next time, from me, Lem Sisay, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thank you.